if you leave now, you've already heard a message. And I'm thankful for uh, those songs this morning. Thank you, Ben, for picking songs that sing the gospel. Man, we've already lifted up Jesus in this place. I praise God for that. And uh, my name is Dave Winger. I serve as the associate pastor here at Hallmark. And it's my privilege to preach today while our pastor is on the John Muir Trail in California. He's a third of the way through his journey. And I'm sure that's sinking in right now at this moment, (laughs) that he's just a third of the way. But please pray for him and the rest of the team uh, as they continue to raise awareness for several projects that man is raising money for. And uh, that number keeps ticking up. And so thank you for those of you that have given. And uh, let's just keep them in prayer that, uh, that they can continue to, to hike and be healthy and all of that stuff. We have some of the team coming back today, driving back. So if you guys are watching on Facebook, hello. We've been praying for you. I hope you have a safe trip. Uh, but I'm going to ask you to turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15. It is my task today, uh, in part of this series that we've been going through, long story short, to present... Jesus the Christ, and I cannot be more excited about that. When Pastor John was assigning sermons, knowing that he would be gone, man, I, I, I got lucky. I get to preach about Jesus Christ. And uh, so I'm excited today to preach that, but uh, I, I also wanted to recap uh, what we've been talking about in the series. A few weeks ago, we started with creation. We know that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and everything in them. And uh, if you haven't read the creation story, go back to the book of Genesis and read the creation story. It's magnificent to see the power of God and all that he did. And he created plants and he made plants with bodies and he made animals with bodies and souls. And when I say soul, I'm just talking about mind, will, emotion. It's what makes your dog different than the daisies on your front porch, okay? Uh, Your dog gets happy to see you when you come home. He's sad when you leave. He chews up your shoes to spite you. Uh, That's what makes animals a little bit different. And then he created from the dust of the earth man in his own image. And the reason we're different is because we serve a triune God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, three in one. Well, he made us like him. That means we have three parts. We have bodies like plants. We have bodies and souls like animals. But we have something different. You see, God, when he made man, breathed into us the breath of life. And that word breath is like spirit. And we became a living being and we reflected his glory and when he created man he said this is very good and he put man and woman in the perfect place they were perfect people they had perfect provision and they only had one rule do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil for in the day that you eat thereof you will surely what die well that's creation then we talked about chaos shortly after God put perfect people in a perfect place with perfect provision with only one stipulation We see Satan come in in a cunning way, and he tempts Eve, and he entices her, and he he causes her to question God's word about the the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and he says, take and eat, and she takes and eat. Long story short, because she took it, she gave to Adam, he took it, Uh, sin came into the world, death through sin and death spread to all, because all had sinned in Adam and Eve, and that brought chaos into God's creation. All the things that were very good were now twisted and perverted and we see death and we see heartache and sorrow and sin and so that's chaos and then last week pastor john talked about the covenant and your bible is divided into two distinct portions the old testament or the old covenant and the new testament or the new covenant and actually there are four covenants in the old testament the first one was with noah we know that after adam and eve sinned and they were expelled from the garden that 
uh, man multiplied on the face of the earth, but so did sin. And God got to a point where he says, I've got to purge the earth from sin. And so he sent a great flood, but not before he selected one family to save, Noah and his family. And he saved them. And you all know the story. In fact, sometimes we wallpaper our kids' nurseries uh, with images of Noah and the ark. It's kind of sick when you think about it, uh, when you look at the true biblical account of that. Uh, But we know that after Noah was saved, that God sent a rainbow, and he made a promise to Noah. It was a covenant. He said, I will never again destroy the entire earth with flood. And so he made a covenant promise to Noah. And then later, he makes a covenant promise uh, to a man named Abram. He was a idol-worshiping pagan in the land of Ur, and he just calls him out, and he said, Abram, I want to make of you a great people, and I'm going to give you a great place to live. It's a covenant about people and place. And he sets him apart. He said, through you and your descendants, I will glorify myself to the rest of the world. He makes a covenant with Abraham. And that sign was the sign of circumcision. And then later on, the people of God, his, his people, his nation, turn their back on him, and he allows them to go into captivity in Egypt, and then he leads them out of captivity with a man named Moses, and he creates a new covenant with the people of Israel through Moses. It's the Mosaic covenant. He gives them his law, the Ten Commandments, and he says, if you keep uh, my commandments, I will tabernacle or I will dwell with you, make my home with you. And again, people will see uh, how I bless you and they will glorify me, and that's the Mosaic covenant. Well, then eventually the people demand a king. And so uh, the one they choose doesn't do very well, and so God says, let's anoint this guy. He's a man after my own heart. His name's David. I'm kind of partial to, to King David. Uh, because our names are the same, but uh, he makes a covenant promise to David, and he says, through your lineage, I will set up a king who will rule, and he will reign forever and ever. So those are the covenants that are summarized quickly, and that brings us to the Christ, and I am so excited to present to you the Christ today, and I've had you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and the reason why is, uh, in 1 Corinthians 15, we find what I think is the most succinct gospel presentation in the entire Bible. And I've I've told you we're going to read verses 1 through 11, but we'll spend most of our time on three verses, verse 3, verses 3, 4, and 5. Uh, But let's read this together, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 11. I'll be reading from the New King James Version. Paul writes, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel, which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which you stand by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I deliver to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, that's Peter, then by the twelve. After that he was seen by over five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, that's the brother of Jesus, then by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also as one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now, let me give you some context about this passage of Scripture. The book of Corinth, Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, was obviously written to the church at Corinth, which was established by the Apostle Paul 
on his second missionary journey. All of this happened only about 25 years after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. So it's very fresh. In fact, he said that some of the eyewitnesses to Jesus' resurrection were still alive today. And he named them. He said you could go talk to them. They're still alive. Some have died, but some are still alive. It's just very fresh. And so Paul started the church at Corinth on his second missionary journey. He went to Corinth, which was a thriving port city. It was very prosperous. It was also a thriving party city. Um, The Corinthians were known for their uh, lust for life, if you will. Uh, modern, in modern day times, if Corinth existed in America, it would be like uh, combining Las Vegas, New York City, and Los Angeles and stirring them together in one, okay? Uh, because there, there was just uh, sexual immorality, there was pagan worship, uh, anything you can, you can imagine was happening in Corinth. In fact, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2 that when he went there, he went there in fear and trembling. Okay? It was an intimidating place with intimidating people. Nevertheless, he preached the gospel. Some believed a church was born. And we know from the book of Acts, chapter 18, that Paul stayed there 18 months and pastored the church of Corinth. And then shortly after he left, he went to Ephesus, and he heard that in Corinth, in that young church, already there was immorality springing up, there was favoritism, there was false doctrine being taught, and so the Holy Spirit inspires Paul to write this letter to them, and I'm so glad he did because we learned so much from the book of First and Second Corinthians. We learned things, that, uh, things such as, you know, that in the church there's all kinds of different people, and nobody's more important than anyone else. We all serve a vital part in the body of Christ. I'm so glad we know that uh, from the book of First Corinthians. We also know uh, that we're supposed to live righteous lives, that our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit of God, 1 Corinthians 6, 19. We also get the famous love chapter. Many of you had 1 Corinthians 13 read at your wedding, you know, love is patient, love is kind, on and on. But in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is addressing some false teaching that was going on. There were some people in the church that said there is no resurrection from the dead. Can you believe that? No resurrection from the dead, that when you're dead, you're done. And Paul said, that's ridiculous, because if there's no resurrection from the dead, you do not serve a risen Savior. And so, inspired by the Holy Spirit, he challenges this false teaching in 1 Corinthians 15, and he does so with a very succinct presentation of who Christ is, what Christ has done, and why it matters in our life. And so, when I was given the task to present Jesus as the Christ, I could think of no better passage than this passage, namely 1 Corinthians 15 verses 3 through 5. So that's where we're going to camp out today. That's what your outline's all about. And I'll, I'll warn you in advance, we have a lot of Scripture references today. Because who am I to describe to you Jesus as the Christ? My words fail me. My ideas fail me. But thankfully, God has given us His Word. He's revealed Himself in His Word. So we're going to read a lot of Scripture today. And I hope you're ready for that. And so, this morning in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 5, we will see six convincing characteristics presenting Jesus as the Christ. And the first thing we see is His person. The very first thing we see in verse 3, this succinct gospel that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and He was buried, and He rose from the dead three days later according to the Scriptures, and He was seen. The first thing He says is Christ. And Christ is his person. Actually, it could also be his position. You know, people say Jesus Christ together, and sometimes people might think, well, Christ must be Jesus' last name. You know, like David Wenger, 
But that's not the case because they didn't use really last names like we do in Bible times. If he would have had a last name for Jesus, it was just his association with his dad. It would have been Jesus bar Joseph. But Jesus Christ has Jesus' name and then his title, his position, who he is. The word Christ, Christos, means anointed one. He, he is the anointed one. He's the one that was anointed by God as King of kings, Lord of lords, Savior of all mankind. He is the promised Messiah. He is Jesus the Christ. Jesus is the, the pre-existing second person of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Three in one. That means he shares all of the eternal attributes of the Godhead. He shares eternity, power, and glory. He possesses all those things because he is the Christ. He is the anointed one. I'm going to have you turn over in your Bibles to Colossians 1 at this time. Colossians 1, 15 through 20. This is another very succinct description by the Apostle Paul on the person of Jesus Christ. Colossians 1, 15 through 20. I'm going to be reading from the New Living Translation. He says, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else, and he holds all creation together. Christ is also head of the church, which is his body. We'll learn more about that next week. He is the beginning, supreme over all who rise from the dead. So he is first in everything. For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ. And through him God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. What a great description of Jesus the Christ. The Apostle John, who wrote his gospel last of all, it's the oldest gospel record, he begins his gospel reminiscent of Genesis 1. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. Without him, nothing was made that was made. And the Word, verse 14, he says, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. He presents Jesus, this man who walked on the earth, as the Christ the second person of the Godhead, the creator of all things that exist. Jesus is the Christ. In Romans eleven thirty six, Paul says, For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever and ever. Are you getting the picture of who Jesus is? Are you seeing his person? He's so much bigger than most people give him credit for. In fact, regarding our series, Christ is the king of all creation. He is the solution to the chaos of man's sin. Regarding the covenants, he's the creator, the keeper, and the completer of all of the covenants rolled into one. Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one. Do you know him this morning? He's above all, he's through all, and he's in all of us who believe. And I'm happy to say this morning, he's my savior. Not only is he my savior, he's my friend. So we see his person, first of all, in this succinct gospel presentation. We also see, number two, his payment 
Paul says Christ died for our sins. When John the Baptist was baptizing and preaching about the coming kingdom, he looked up and he sees Jesus coming. And in John 1.29, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He says, this is the Lamb of God. This is the person. And he's coming to take away the sins of the world. He referenced his payment. When sin's chaos corrupted God's creation way back in the book of Genesis, it's because Satan invited Eve to take and eat of the forbidden fruit. But do you remember when Jesus sat around a table? We call it the Last Supper, celebrating the Passover with his disciples. He told them as well, he said, take and eat, for this is my body which is broken for you. Drink this cup, it is the new, t- the new covenant in my blood. He was referencing the reason he came, it was to pay for man's sin. And so Satan gives Eve an invitation to death, take and eat. Jesus gives the disciples an invitation to life, take and eat. This is a new covenant. I have come to pay for your sin. Romans 5, 6 through 8 is a great summary of Jesus' payment for our sin. Paul writes, when we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, For God made Christ, who knew no sin, to be the offering for our sin, so that we could be made right with God through Christ. Jesus, the Christ, came to make a payment, and it was for our sin. Let that sink in for a minute. Christ, this pre-existing king of creation, the creator, the keeper, the completer of all the covenants, came, and he died. Why? To pay for our sin. Mark 10, 45, Jesus says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. He paid our debt with his death. I want you to picture yourself standing at the foot of a giant dam. You see the wall that holds back the reservoir of water. How many of you have ever been to Hoover Dam? Anybody been there? There's, there, there's some sort of a secret tour, I guess, that takes you down in the valley that's below the dam, and you can look up and you can see the great wall that's holding back the massive amount of water. Picture yourself standing there. The wall represents the grace and mercy and patience of God. The water that is behind the wall represents God's wrath that has been storing up against your sin. All of a sudden, as you stand there, the dam begins to crack and break, and the water begins to rush forward, and then complete failure, and all the water, the torrents of water, come rushing down the valley, wiping out everything in its path. There is no escape, and just before the water hits you, a great hole opens up in the earth before you, and all the water rushes into the hole, and you are spared. What a relief. That's a picture of the cross of Jesus Christ. We have been storing up wrath in our sin and rebellion against God, and and it is just building up and building up and building up, and eventually it will be unleashed. But thankfully for us, all who believe, it was unleashed on Christ. 
as he hung on the cross. That was his payment. Jesus came to die for our sin. And what's interesting is, number three, it was his plan. Paul says in this gospel presentation, Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. It was all laid out. It was, it was all thought out. This was his plan. It was whispered in the garden back in Genesis 3.15. We learned that even after the chaos of man's sin, shortly after that, as God was judging Adam and Eve and the serpent, he said to the serpent, and I will cause hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. That's the first presentation, the first whisper of the gospel. I have a plan. There is hope. I am sending someone that will crush the serpent's head. It was all according to the scriptures. It was even pictured in verse 21 of Genesis 3 when, when God had an innocent animal slain to cover Adam and Eve in their, in their nakedness and shame. An innocent blood was shed to cover the guilty. It was, it was whispered in the garden. It was pictured all throughout the covenants, and it was prophesied by the prophets. You know, when uh, Jesus stood with Pilate before the crowd, Pilate questioned him, and he says in John 19, 10 through 11, he said, do you not know that I have the power to crucify you and the power to release you? And Jesus said to Pilate, you could have no power at all against me unless it had been given to you by my Father. You see, this is not an accident. This is not Pilate's plan. It's his plan. Jesus planned it. Jesus the Christ, the King of all creation, the creator, keeper, and completer of all the covenants planned even before man sinned how he was going to redeem us from our fallenness. Thousands of years before Jesus was born in Bethlehem, it was decided that he would die for man's sin. You know, scholars uh, say that Jesus fulfilled more than 300 Old Testament prophecies, and, and that's, that's mind-boggling because, you know, what's the likelihood of a person fulfilling so many prophecies. Well, not too long ago, there was a math professor named Stoner. He's probably in the 70s, you know, given the last name. I'm just kidding. Peter Stoner. But uh, he gave 600 of his students in a math class a probability problem that would determine the odds for one person fulfilling not 300, but just eight, eight of the prophecies that were predicted about Christ. They figured out the math probability of this. First, the students calculated the odds of one person fulfilling all the conditions of just one specific prop prophecy, such as a person being betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. What are the odds that hundreds of years before it happened, someone predicted that a person would be betrayed by a friend for 30 pieces of silver? They figured out that probability. Then the students did their best to estimate the odds for all eight prophecies combined. Now remember, just eight prophecies, not 300, but eight. This was their conclusion. They calculated that the odds against one person fulfilling all eight prophecies are astronomical. One in 10 to the 21st power. For one person fulfilling just eight of the prophecies. But Jesus has fulfilled over 300 prophecies. And if you do the math on that, the odds are one chance in a trillion to the 13th power. 
One in a trillion to the 13th power. How could one man fulfill all those prophecies? Well, critics might say, well, Jesus knew all those prophecies and he tried to arrange his life so that he would meet those prophecies. Really? Can you arrange where you were born? You might can be able to arrange how you die, but you can't talk two other guys into dying with you on either side of you. How can he fulfill all the prophecies? Because he's Jesus the Christ. He's the pre-existing one. And it was his plan to die for our sins according to the Scriptures. Prophecies like Isaiah 53, 5 through 6, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Christ fulfilled the old covenant with his substitutionary life and death, and he initiated a new covenant with his glorious resurrection. Turn over now to Hebrews chapter 10. I, wanna, I want you to turn to one more lengthy passage of Scripture because it shows how Jesus is the keeper and completer of the covenants that we talked about last Sunday. That's what makes the old covenants the old covenants because he brought in the new covenant. Hebrews 10, 1 through 18. And we may, we may not read through all of this, but it, I, I want to read through some of it. It says, The old system under the law of Moses was only a shadow, a dim preview of the good things to come. Not the good things themselves. The sacrifice under that system were repeated again and again, year after year. But they were never, never able to provide perfect cleansing for those who came to worship. If they could have provided perfect cleansing, the sacrifices would have stopped. For the worshipers would have been purified once for all time. And their feelings of guilt would have disappeared. But instead, those sacrifices actually reminded them of their sins year after year. For it is not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. That is why when Christ came into the world, he said to God, You did not want animal sacrifices or sin offerings, but you have given me a body to offer. You were not pleased with burnt offerings or other offerings for sin. Then I said, Look, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written about me in the Scriptures. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Look at verse 10 now. For God's will was for us to be made holy by the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. That's the new covenant. Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world, laying down His perfect, pure, righteous life for sinners like you and me. And by faith, in Him, we enter into a partnership with God. That's the new covenant. It was His plan. Now let's look at number four. Verse four, Paul says he was buried. And I like to refer to this as his pause. His pause. Don't you find it interesting that as Paul summarizes the gospel, that this is included, Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures and he was buried. He was buried. And we know that he was in, in the grave for three days. He was buried. This is interesting. This pause in between Jesus' death and the display of his power at his resurrection. Why was it important for Jesus to be buried for three days? Well, there's a few reasons. You see, Jewish 
Jewish people at that time believed that the immaterial part of man, his mind, will, and his, and his emotions stayed with the body of a man for up to three days after his death. And so if Jesus had risen before the three-day mark, it would have been kind of a resuscitation, you know, nothing super, super miraculous. But man, if it was three days, his soul had already departed his body. This is a true miracle for the Jews who desire a sign. And then the second reason is because three days is what Jesus himself prophesied. You remember passages like John 2.19 where Jesus said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up again. In Matthew 12.14, Jesus said, as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. He was fulfilling his own prophecy. Matthew 16.21, Jesus said, from that time Jesus began to show uh, to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised on the third day. So here we have this pause. He was buried three days. Can I tell you what I think might be another reason that the pause is included in the powerful presentation of the gospel? It's because I think God works on us during the pauses of life. I think that's just a gospel truth. Isn't that true in your life? You know, when we're praying about something and we're seeking God about something, sometimes he'll answer with a yes, sometimes he'll answer with a no, and sometimes he answers with a wait, wait. And it's in those waiting times, it's in those pauses of life that our faith is developed. Notice after Jesus was buried, what happened to the disciples? Some of them scattered, never to be seen again. Some of them gathered to pray. Some of them, their faith was demonstrated. Some of them, their faithlessness was exposed. But it was in that waiting time where they sought God, in that waiting time. So don't hate the wait. Don't, don't despise that pause in your life because sometimes the longer the pause, the greater the miracle. The pause, he was buried. Now look at verse four there, number five. He rose again the third day. This speaks of his power, his power. No other religion on the planet is based on the historical fact of a bodily resurrection besides Christianity. Our faith rises and falls on an empty tomb. It's unique to us. We believe it. We believe that Jesus physically rose from the dead, and because he rose, one day we will rise. John chapter 10, 18, Jesus said, No one can take my life from me. I sacrifice it voluntarily, for I have the authority to lay it down when I want to, and I can take it up again. No one else can say that. In Matthew 28, 18, before he commissions his disciples, he says, All authority has been given unto me in heaven and on earth. He has authority over death, hell, and the grave. The old song that we used to sing is, Death uh, could not keep its prey. Jesus, my Savior, he tore the bars away. Jesus, my Lord. Up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph or his foes. He arose the victor from the dark domain, and he lives forever with his saints to reign. He arose, he arose, hallelujah, Christ arose. 
The reality of his resurrection is why we're here worshiping this morning on a Sunday, the first day of the week, and not a Saturday, the traditional Sabbath, because he rose from the dead on a Sunday morning. He established the new covenant, and that's why we worship him on a Sunday morning. Without the resurrection, we would have a hopeless faith. Paul says it as you read in 1 Corinthians 15 there, down a little bit further in verses 16 and 17. He says, for if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile, and you're still in your sins. Then he goes on to say in verse 19, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. But now Christ is risen from the dead. And has become the first fruits of all those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. Paul says in Romans 8:11, he said, If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit. Who lives in you because he lives we will one day live because he's alive we can say one day we will be alive forevermore with him in glory that's his power because he lives I can face tomorrow because he lives all fear is gone because I know he holds the future and life is worth the living just because he lives that's his power and then finally he finishes this succinct gospel presentation with his proof. He says in verse 5, and he was seen, he was seen. And this is his proof. Again, this was written to the church at Corinth just 25 years after the events of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Living eyewitnesses who saw the risen Savior. He said, you can go talk to him. In fact, go talk to Peter. Do you remember Peter, the most outspoken disciple the foot-in-mouth disciple that would often say things first and then think about it later, the guy who cut off Malchus's ear because he didn't understand what was unfolding in the garden, Peter, you know the one that was in the courtyard during Jesus' trial and he was confronted and denied Jesus three times before morning and then he fled? You remember Peter, the one who lost faith during the pause and he said, I'm just going to go back and go fishing. The whole thing's over. It's all over. But that's not Peter today, Paul's saying. Go talk to him. You know the head of the church in Jerusalem? That Peter? The one who preaches the gospel in spite of being imprisoned and beaten? That Peter? You know what changed Peter? He saw Jesus alive. That's what changed him. That'll change you. You see a person that you watch die and is buried, and then three days later he rose, and you can touch him, you can eat with him, and you can talk to him. That's going to change your life. And Peter was transformed. Paul said, Peter has seen him. There was a couple other people that had seen Jesus resurrected. He said the 12 saw him. It's described in John chapter 20, verses 24 through 29, including, included among those 12 was doubting Thomas. He's the famous one that doubted during the pause. When they told Thomas, Jesus is alive, he said, I don't believe it. No, it's true, Thomas, we saw him. I don't believe it. For me to believe that Jesus is risen, I would have to see him with my own eyes. I have to put my finger in the palm, in the nail prints in his hands, and I'd have to shove my hand into the, the spear wound in his side. And we all know the story. Jesus appears and he says, Thomas, behold my hands. Come here. Put your hand in my side. And Thomas, overwhelmed 
by the risen Christ. He said, my Lord and my God. Do you know what Jesus told Thomas? He said, blessed are you because you've seen. But even more blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. He's talking about us. But he was seen. There's proof that Jesus has the power over sin, death, and the grave. And then he was also seen by his skeptical brother, James. I think it's neat that Paul separates James because we all know that if we have a sibling and we tell that sibling that we're the son of God, you know, the anointed one. <laughs> oh, by the way, <laughs> stop saying me by my first and last name. From now on, it's Dave, the anointed one. My sister would be like, right. No way, man. Nobody knows you better than your siblings. And Jesus had a skeptical sibling brother named James who did not believe in him until he saw him risen from the dead. And then he became the head of the Jerusalem church. He died a martyr's death. Why? Because he'd seen the risen Savior. And then Paul says he was seen by over 500 people at the same time. They all saw the same thing. 500 different people. Go interview them. They're still alive to this day and then finally he says and finally he was seen by me and I saw him so undeservingly I, I was a persecutor of the church and yet he showed himself to me on the road to Damascus Acts chapter 9 you can read the story and Paul went from a persecutor of the church to a planter of the church Amen. from one who was against Jesus to one who was so for Jesus that he said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. His life was transformed. So we see Jesus' power. We see Jesus' proof. And you might say, okay, Dave, all of those guys saw Jesus, but have you seen Jesus? And to that I would say, yes. I see Jesus in you. I see Jesus in you. I see Jesus in you. And when I look in the mirror despite my failings, I see Jesus in me. I see Jesus in his word. I see Jesus in creation. I see Jesus all around me. I am a witness of his power. Why? Because he's transformed my life. He's transformed your life. I see his fruit in you. I sense his spirit in you. He's alive. I serve a risen Savior. He's in the world today. I know that he's living, whatever men may say. I see his hand of mercy. I hear his voice of cheer. And just the time I need him, he's always near. He lives. Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me. He talks with me along life's narrow way. He lives. Salvation to impart. You ask me how I know he lives? He lives within my heart. Amen. Does he live in your heart this morning? In this short passage of Scripture, we see his person, we see his payment, we see his plan, we see his pause, his power, finally his proof. Paul writes later in Romans 8, 31 through 39, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution 
Shall famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus is the Christ. He is the Son of the living God. He said of himself, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Do you know him today? That's the gospel that came to Paul. That's the gospel that came through Paul to us. And that's the gospel that I'm preaching today. Jesus, the Christ, died for our sins. According to the scriptures, he was buried. He rose on the third day according to the scriptures. And he was seen. Have you seen him? Have you turned from your sin? Have you trusted in Jesus for salvation? Will you stand with me this morning? It's time for some of you to stop trying to please God and start trusting in the only one who has ever pleased God. And his name is Jesus. He lived a life you could never live. He kept the law in every way. Not even his enemies could condemn him of sin. He lived a pure and righteous life. But then he surrendered his life and died on the cross as a substitution for you. He died for your sin. He died for my sin. He took God's wrath on himself so that we could have his righteousness. And that, that, that gift that he offers, man, it's good news, isn't it? It's good news. How do, we, how do we attain salvation that he provides? Simple childlike faith. That's all we do. A little child could do it. It's so simple. You turn from your sin and your self-effort and you say, God, I received your gift of salvation. Save me. And he will. He promised in his word, whosoever believes in me will not perish, but will have everlasting life. If you need to do that this morning, we're going to sing. There's people down here that would love to show you from God's word how Jesus can be your savior and friend. I'm going to challenge you to do that. If you want to come and pray, the altars are open. If you'd like to explore membership with Hallmark, I invite you to come as well. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, my words, my imagination fails in describing who you are as the Christ. But thank, thankfully, your word reveals that to us. And now, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would take the word that has been preached and planted in our hearts, Lord. Draw us to yourself. If someone's here this morning and they need to trust you for salvation, I pray that they would do that now. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you need to come this morning, please come as we sing.